This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we are kicking off Pride Month with a series of episodes here at TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. And they're going to be characterized by what? Murder and mayhem, because that's how we celebrate Pride. That's Pride. For that. <laughs> and to be fair, we kind of kicked off Pride Month last week. Mm, mm-hmm. That's very true. We Last week we covered the murder of Jesse Valencia. Uh, so we really did kind of start with gay murder and mayhem last week. So, yeah. yeah. But so today we talked about doing something that it's not technically an episode of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. That will be back in full force next week. But we wanted to talk about a concept. And I was literally I was thinking about this. I wanted to ask you, Eric Shaw Quinn, in the in the shower this morning, I was saying, are there Uh actually people I was saying, how much longer until I can get more of this soap during this pandemic? No, I was saying. Do you think there might be people who listen to our podcast who are young enough that the concept of gay panic doesn't really exist for them? It was such a staple of conversations about sexuality in my youth before I came out and after and I think before that. But I wonder if I I hate it when people say today's generation because we're all generations that are alive today are alive today, but I wonder if younger LGBT people are less familiar with that concept, particularly its legal implications, than maybe we are. I, you know, maybe they aren't familiar with the actual term gay panic, but there still exists, as demonstrated by that jerk, um, Tom Hardy, relatively recently, um, Mm -hmm. the sort of belief that being gay or having somebody think that you're gay or something like that is somehow a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like there are people there, you know, people of that generation who refer to things as being gay as a bad thing. Oh, that's so gay. You know, like, so I think the notion, the underlying notion of gay panic, that the idea that there is something bad about being gay mm-hmm. it still exists. And I think that, we're very much still subjected to that. The The use of gay panic as a defense now would probably get you laughed out of court. Mm-hmm. But right. I only say, but I only say probably because, you know, like people still, we're still dealing with the, well, I should have my, according to my religion, I should have the right to, you know, gay bash or whatever it is that my religion teaches as though somehow, you know, that, justifies your bigotry but people still are doing that so I, I wouldn't even rule out the the possibility of somebody bringing that into court they're certainly using religious um, belief to, as a justification for discriminating against women and women's um, uh, reproductive rights 
Uh, right, absolutely. And I think I do. I want to go back to the Tom Hardy thing because I think that's just long enough ago that some people may not know what we're talking about. But when Tom Hardy was doing promotions for a movie, which, and I, I think the movie didn't get as where much attention was, as this press Where conference. he was playing a gay person in the movie. So mm-hmm. not only was he doing a movie and taking and doing an interview, he was actually playing a gay person in the movie. So mm-hmm. go ahead, Christopher. So um, a reporter from a gay publication in, I believe it was Toronto or somewhere in Canada, asked what was arguably a clumsily worded question about basically Tom Hardy had previously made statements to the effect on the record when he was not quite as famous that he had been bisexual or sexually fluid at various points of his life, that he was, you know, more interested in women and all that sort of stuff. And so he was asked about these questions and he was asked about how he felt about these questions in the context of playing this character to which he aggressively and bullishly responded. Are you asking me about my sexuality? And the reporter kind of mumbled his way through it, and he said, "Next I think he said, question." Well, sure. Yeah. Well, sure. Something like that. To which Tom Hardy said, "Next question," as if you know he had been asked this unseemly, invasive, uh, degrading thing, which was really just you know essentially, what is your sexual identity, and how does it relate to your career? The, the and playing the, a gay character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Like it was not not a relevant question. It was a perfectly relevant thing to ask. He was playing a gay character and he was on the record as being sexually fluid. So did that impact him? Did it did it color his decision to take the role? That's a really valid on topic question. And he acted like a dick about it. And the thing that was really annoying was acknowledged for acting like a dick about it in a positive way. He was celebrated, yes. The clickbait headlines, I remember the day it happened, and it was one of the, I, I speak out less on social media about these things than I used to, but this was one that got to me, and I actually did speak out about it. The it, And I was responding, as we discussed on that day, the clickbait headlines, it said, Tom Hardy expertly shuts down reporter who asks him, you know, inappropriate question, and it was... How is this question inappropriate? It is not inappropriate to be asked if you are gay. It is not inappropriate. No. And if you're acting like it is, Which you he are perpetuating ask. shame. Yeah, yeah. No, he didn't. He didn't even ask that. But if he had asked that specifically, there's still nothing wrong with being asked that. I stopped watching um, How to Get Away with Murder because the guy playing the gay character acted like a jerk about being acted asked about... Um, his own sexuality in regards to playing that really very specific gay character. Uh, uh, yeah, and he his response... Explicit. The substance of his response was also ridiculous. He said, well, we don't ask Lady Gaga about her relationships. And it was like, what are you kidding? I would say 90% of entertainment journalism is coverage of entertainers' private relationships. That's an absurd comparison. Absolutely. I'm not sure what Jennifer Lopez would talk about to the press if she wasn't talking about her relationships. I guess her outfits. I love Jennifer. I mean, nothing against her, but she has used and parlayed her relationship with pick one of them um, as a key to keep herself constantly in the press. Uh, and so I, I was... Uh, right. I, I should say Jack Valley. And she's not alone. It's, you know, they all do it. And I should say that Jack Valley did later apologize and say he regretted everything he said and understood how he was perpetuating a double standard. But that was, it was much later. I will have to say the thing about the Tom Hardy thing that was so dis- dispiriting to me was the number of people 
who based on their what their their statements on social media I didn't know any of them personally who claimed to be LGBT were defending him as having asserted his right to privacy and the argument that I tried to make and I did even write a blog post about it was you know this is my relation my relationships are not private you know like if I were going to get married to another man it would not be an issue of privacy you know if you what you're really asking is for all gay people to remain in the closet you know and and I think there is a certain responsibility that public figures take on that if they are LGBT and they do not want to disclose that to the public, they come up with some graceful dodges to the question. If you look back over Ricky Martin's career, Ricky Martin is out of the closet today, but he came out long after he had really been at the peak of his career. And if you look at the answers to the questions about his sexuality he got there, he got back then, he really did perfect the art of the dodge. What he didn't do was act sanctimonious and outraged like you were asking him if he molested kids. Because that was really, I felt like, the reaction was... Tom Hardy reacted as if someone had asked him to produce pictures of him and his wife at the time having sex in their bedroom. And the people who were coming at me on social media were saying, well, everyone can't be the Kardashians. And I'm like, the, Kar- the Kardashians are famous because of a sex tape. They're not, fa- they're not famous because they, you know, they went out in public with their significant other. It was really, it was distressing. I was really upset by it. And I, I've really seen Tom Hardy just be completely let off the hook for it. I've seen you know, friends of mine who are big social justice warriors on social media in the romance world just constantly posting Tom Hardy gifts while savagely attacking anybody else that they think is really, you know, stepping out of line or, or, or saying bigoted things. So it's like, OK, I just kind of threw up my hands and backed off it. Yeah, I, I you know, like I'm it didn't change the fact that I think he's a good actor. I just thought that his response and the response to his response was very it was hurtful and insensitive, and I thought it was very much uh, a part of what we're talking about in Gay Panic, the belief that somehow the inference that you are gay, might gay, or might be gay, or have been gay in the past is somehow a bad thing. Right. Yeah. And I, I, it, Like, yeah. asking somebody's religion, would that be offensive? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it isn't a choice, like a religion, but okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, it, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think so. We said this is like not technically an episode of True Crime TV Club, but there is a true crime special that we both watched, which we felt was going to potentially contribute to this conversation. Uh, it is a new Netflix series, new as of this recording, called Trial by Media, uh, The Truth Behind the Crimes. And we watched episode one, which was focused on something called that is known in popular parlance now as the Jenny Jones murder. And it is, in essence, a murder that resulted, um, allegedly resulted, after the taping of a talk show from the 90s called The Jenny Jones Show. If you don't remember Jenny Jones, she was one of many very popular uh, talk show hosts from that decade. Uh, Ricky Lake was another one. Jerry Springer, arguably the most famous one. Oprah sort Oprah of, and Phil yeah. were still, it was all that sort of Chicago um, talk show gang that was a bunch of them. Phil Donahue really sort of cranked it up and Oprah was the big winner. And I think largely because she began distancing herself from the sort of salacious, Springer was the most extreme example, but they were all pretty, Geraldo was in there. Yes. They were all pretty... Um, Raunchy, I don't know, Maury kind of, Maury Povich, Maury Povich kind of yeah, Montel Williams, yeah, another Montel one, right? Will, yeah, 
the sort of daytime. There was strippers and porn stars and I'm sleeping with your cousin's best friend's manicurist girlfriend. You know what I mean? Like it was, yes. it was, it was a very extreme sort of that, that Jerry Springer style confrontational. What did they call it? There was even some ambush journalism. Ambush. Yeah. And ambush I was going to, which I, journalism, like, yeah. okay, let's not smear journalism. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, what did you know about this murder before you watched the special? I was curious. We didn't talk about it before we watched it. We watched it separately and we haven't talked about it yet. We wait for the yeah, show. Yeah, no. Um I was, you know, I was well aware of the um of the, it was a big deal at the time and um it was something that I was very much aware of mm-hmm. um in its happening and I you know, felt pretty strongly about and uh yeah, and the show was the show was an interesting address of the uh, of the of the questions. It, it, the show really was more about um, freedom of the press, mm-hmm. right? Right. Which I think is also an interesting topic. But yeah, I, I have to say that it was one of those shows. I thought they should have called um, the the show, or maybe even the series. I have only seen the one. It's uh, it's you know, it's George Clooney and Grant Heslov. It's that. It's pretty. It's a high tone kind of production, and it was well put together. But it really was more about the press issues, and really seemed to me that th- at least this episode ought to have been called um, "Trees for the Forest." Oh, okay. So what do you mean by that? Go into it. I just felt like they completely every person at every level on the show completely missed what they were talking about. I I was kind of, I was kind of astonished Mm -hmm. that, you know, because I had not followed the trial on court TV. I'm not a believer in televising, uh, courtroom stuff for just this reason. Mm Um, uh, and, so I, I hadn't seen in detail, particularly the civil case, but all of it uh, unfold. And like, this was a story about homophobia, yes. and nobody nobody mentioned homophobia. Like, yes, maybe nobody once. mentioned home. Nobody mentioned it. It was like I I I kind of was astonished at by the end of the the whole thing that no one had talked about it. It should have been the defense, like. I felt like like this was all based on the belief that somebody believing that you are or saying that you are gay is a bad thing. And that's yes. a homophobic response. And he, you know, I did what he did based on that that belief. But but nobody said that. Like, no. if he had if if the. I guess we should premise it by yeah, talking let me, about let me what set actually it. happened. I'll set it up because I absolutely agree with you, and I'm going to go all in with you. Although they did have one interviewee, Amy Whelan from the National Center for Lesbian Rights, who maybe gave a 10-second soundbite of what we we're talking about. But this is the setup. It's the Jenny Jones Show, and the Jenny Jones Show, like a lot of talk shows in this era, would bring you out in front of a studio audience and surprise you with something intended to shock you and get good ratings and a reaction from the audience. Now, I have to say, having watched many of these shows when I was younger, during the 1990s, this what Jenny was doing was actually a milder form of this sort of, or what she did in this instance was a milder form of it. There were instances where they would bring you out and you would think you were there to talk to your mother about recipes and your wife would be sitting in the chair and she would admit that she had cheated on you. And this would happen for you in front of the cameras 
not live usually, but in front of a live audience. So the Jenny Jones Show reaches out to a young man named Jonathan Schmitz. Uh, He's from Orion Township, which is outside Detroit, Michigan. And they say to him, we would like you to come on the show because you have a secret crush. And this secret crush could be either a man or a woman. And you will find out during the taping of the show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which Mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. So Jonathan Smitch, I'm always going to mispronounce his last name, receives this invitation from the Jenny Jones show. They say, you have a secret crush. We're going to reveal it for you live in front of the studio audience as we tape this episode. Uh, It could be either a man or a woman. Jonathan agrees to go on the show, which I would like to underline 600 times and highlight with a bright yellow marker. Jonathan, having been given this information, agrees to go to the taping of this show. When he walks out, he sees two of his good friends there. One is his friend Donna. The other is his friend Scott Amador. When he sits down, they reveal to him that the secret crush is Scott. And they replay a clip from him for him that they just taped of Scott describing a fairly explicit PG-rated, or let's say PG-worded, sexual fantasy about tying Jonathan up in his hammock in his backyard and applying, you know, ice cream or whatever, making him basically a human ice cream sundae that he eats. Cream, Whipped cream, not ice cream. I like ice cream better. <laughs> I think it's more fun and it's cold. Well, it would definitely be an interesting uh, choice. But yeah, whipped cream and, and champagne and strawberries. He, he said, you know, it's a... Right. He said the general idea. He wasn't specific, but he alluded to right, what we exactly. all know would happen. So um, Jonathan laughs. He turns to Scott and says, you lied to me, which suggests that he had asked him, are you my secret crush, by the way? And Scott had maybe said no or whatever to get him on the show. They, they have this, you know, this. He says, I'm heterosexual. The audience cheers riotously for his heterosexuality in a way that was like, wow, this was 1995. But they uh, also cheered riotously for the idea that Scott was going to tell him that he was gay. And I hope you are, too, on the air. So they may have just been reacting to the audience warm up person and the flashing applause. That's sign. true. That's very true. So as we learn from later testimony, which is revealed later in the episode we've been watching, the three of them go to the airport together. They fly home together. They go out to dinner together. They have drinks together. 
They share inside jokes together. They find a broken flashing yellow light in the parking lot at the airport and they make a joke about that. So I want to say three days later or maybe two days later, Scott leaves a note relating to that flashing light on Jonathan's doorstep and basically says, you're the only one who can make this light stop flashing. Okay. So sort of a suggestive note calling back to the whole experience. Jonathan goes and buys a shotgun. He drives out to Scott's trailer where Scott is inside with a friend of his and he shoots Scott with the shotgun. That's basically the short version. There's a struggle, shoots him twice with the shotgun. There isn't really a struggle. Scott holds up a chair in front of himself as a defend himself because somebody is at his door with a shotgun. Right. And the guy shoots him. So what results from this are two trials. There is the murder trial of Jonathan Schmitz, at which he hires a defense attorney named James Burdick, who if you look up... Um, slimy defense attorney in the dictionary and these there's more than one in this uh there's a giant picture of james burdick and the defense of jonathan basically rests on this thing that we have been talking about which is the idea of gay panic i don't know if they pursue it as a legal defense because i i think at this time it was even falling out of out of, out of legality as a legal defense but they say jonathan was so completely humiliated by the implication on television this episode has never aired by the way this episode was taped but it was not aired on television. So all of this is a result of what happened in front of the studio audience and the potential of the episode going on the air eventually. Um, And Jonathan is convicted of second degree murder in the shooting of Scott Amador. Um, There is then another trial in which, talk about unlikely bedfellows, Jonathan's father and Scott's brother both team up to sue the Jenny Jones show, claiming that they are ultimately culpable for this because of the ambush style of whatever they did to Jonathan by telling him exactly what could have happened when he walked out there and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's enough of a setup before we dive back into the implications of it. But the the focus of the episode is on this second trial, which is the 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 question of whether or not Warner Brothers Television, which which uh, produced the Jenny was Jones culpable. show, was liable. And again, the arguments for this rested entirely on this idea that there was nothing worse than someone implying that you were homosexual. It was. And they and we never really addressed. I even felt like the fact that Scott's own family brought this suit and pursued it in this way was homophobic. Yeah. And they were not unaware that Scott was gay or particularly upset about it. I it was a there was a sort of blindness about it that was that was that it that just kept hitting me because the show didn't address it either. No one addressed it. Right. So Scott's family in joining in this lawsuit with Jonathan's family is basically saying the show facilitated or provided this platform for our brother to do something terrible with his sexuality, which was to confess his attraction to a friend of his that he wasn't sure was gay or maybe had suspicions about or whatever. And so it was, yeah, it was all cloaked in this unbelievable amount of gay shame, 
But then there was something revealed in the course of the trial against Warner Brothers. The father. The, yes. Just knocked me sideways. And I and again, it gets back to your earlier point about this. How did this not become the entire special? I guess because it's a show called Trial by the Media. The whole case. Both cases should have been built around the father's. Anyway, go ahead and tell them the revelation. But yeah, the father's testimony really changed everything for me. So here's what happened in those three days, during those three days, between when they all left the studio best friends and had fun together and inside jokes and the murder of Scott Amador. Jonathan called his father to say, well, dad, that taping of the Jenny Jones show, it didn't work out the way I act, I thought it was It, tur- it going to. It turns out... Um, the secret crush was my friend Scott, and Jonathan's father went apeshit and admits to it on the stand that he said, this is absolute, people will think you're gay. This is absolutely the worst thing ever. And then, and you have to tell me, Eric, if I imagine this, because this was literally one line. No. His father said, you have to kill Scott so that people believe you are being stalked. Otherwise, they're going to think that you're actually a homosexual, and that is mortifying and i was like what he says that's what he would do okay okay all right well somewhat it's a a little more it's not quite a direction but it it might as well have been but i think as i recall it he said that's what he would do and then he asks the um the 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 attorney for i think time warner wouldn't you do that if somebody was being you know like and there's sort of this stunned silence in the in the courtroom of like uh no, we would not kill people because they thought because they were making it seem like we were gay. Like, but yeah, he's he completely without any sort of reservation. He says that under oath in the trial and and it still doesn't make the trial about homophobia. They still continue to believe that this whole thing was about the negligence of the Jenny Jones show who, in fact, was capitalizing on homophobia in using this as a surprise. Because, again, finding out that somebody of the same sex has a crush on you is no bigger a deal than finding out that somebody of the... Like, if the woman who was on the show had said she had a crush on him, would it have been embarrassing and humiliating and damaging to him? No. Are we saying that? Yeah. No. So the only thing about this that makes it different is that is the homophobia implicit in the admission and people's reaction to the admission on the show. So even Jenny Jones's show was being was playing on the homophobia implicit in this particular um what you call it as as even the prosecutor uh from the initial case, said this is the clearest case of premeditated first-degree murder I I believe I've ever seen. He goes, buys the ammunition, buys the shotgun, drives over to his house, and kills him three days later in cold blood. Like, it is, there is nothing more premeditated than that. And yet, everybody acts as though somehow being asked that question or finding that out led to this sort of insane response. But she said, I think she said, it may have been the woman from the lesbian rights organization, but one of the two of them said, what if women, when Mm -hmm. they get hit on at a bar, shot and killed the guy for hitting on them? Like, Mm -hmm. would that be okay? Like, clearly that's not a thing. So the only thing that makes this a different situation is the implicit homophobia 
on everybody's part. And it was so pervasive in every action in the entire show, including the jury findings in both cases. The fact that the show itself, the documentary we were watching, didn't mention the homophobia. I, I was just, I was dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. I, I, so just to wrap up the what the show did cover so we can get back to talking about what we want to talk about. The jury finds for um, the families. The jury awards a huge settlement, something on the order of, I think, $30 million that Warner Brothers is is due to pay. The family, the high court in Michigan vacates the decision two to one. They say, yeah, that's not how the law works. This is this is a free speech <laughs> issue, you know, and I think I, I would say so apart from the homophobia, the thing that that popped out of, uh, uh, of that side of the story for me is like, at what point are we when we te- when we talk about these constructs where the media is this terrible, overwhelming, all-powerful, oppressive force that we must battle at every turn, at what point do we hold individuals culpable for signing up for things like the Jenny Jones show or more contemporarily uh, reality shows? And we say to them, you have to have some awareness of what you're getting into. This is not the first reality show. This was not the first talk show. They told Jonathan point blank. This is what is awaiting you if you go on this show. And if he was not mentally up, if he didn't have the fortitude to endure that, why is that responsibility not his? If he was so fragile that the revel- that one of those two possibilities that they presented to him, a guy might be your secret crush, you know, that he was going to murder somebody over it, that's on him. It's not on Warner Brothers. So I, there was that whole issue. And I think, you know, I, uh, you know. And the fact that in all the history of all of those shows, Jerry Springer may still be on the air. He's the only one who ever resorted to this. No one else, after a revelation on any of these other talk shows, thousands and thousands of revelation, surprise, you know, ambush talk shows, has ever killed the person following three days after the show. And in the, as I said... Ever. And, right, and as I said earlier... In the scheme of things, of what these shows were doing back then, this was nothing. Like, there were people walking out on stage and finding out that their child was not theirs. There was a show that was about DNA paternity tests. Like, this was, people were being humiliated. I don't know if people remember the film Hope Floats with Sandra Bullock, but the whole premise of that film was based off these type of shows. She goes on a talk show with her girlfriend, and the girlfriend says, I'm sleeping with your husband. And so she leaves her life and her marriage and goes and has a romantic time in her small town. I didn't remember that. I yes. did see Hope Floats, but I didn't remember that that was the, the inciting incident. Yeah, I mean, Maury Povich is still on the air. Like, yeah. they're still doing the, you are not the father. He is the DNA king. Like, uh, uh, yeah, it is so that he's the only one ever to resort to, um, to murder really kind of indicts everybody's claim that somehow, and, you know, Time Warner made the point right along. This is... This, we were no way culpable for this particular outcome. This is entirely on Jonathan. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. 
At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So I want to take us back to the murder trial for a bit because I think there were other arguments that uh, Jonathan, excuse me, his defense attorney tried to throw in there that were about this idea that this was somebody who was too fragile, too vulnerable to have been put in this position. He had Graves disease, allegedly. And again, lots of Graves disease patients. Most of them, in fact, probably don't murder people. Um, Wendy Williams has notably not murdered anybody (laughs) and... You know, if anybody was going to, I think it might be Wendy. (laughs) (laughs) Love her, but she seems like the one who might say, yeah, I've had just about enough of that. Kabang. (laughs) Right. So, okay. So there was that. There was even a testimony at his murder trial that his father had been physically abusive towards him when he was a young boy. So, okay. His father told the story on the stand of beating him with a belt. Yeah. In front, while holding his by the hair in front of his classmates. In front of his classmates. That was the thing. I was like, yes. oh, my God, where was this happening? In the hallway at school? Like, like, yeah. So, and this is the father who later brings no, the child. he was char- dragging him back into class. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not like that makes so it, it was better. actually in class. No, it doesn't Jesus. make it. makes it worse. I think they were making the case for... How how heightened his sensitivity to public humiliation was, but it was like, yeah, that's a strange way to make that point. Particularly, particularly when yes. this is the guy who who then told you that you have basically that you have to go kill Scott or people will think you're a fag. Okay, so answer me this: Do you think he would have done it if he hadn't had that phone call with his father after the taping? No. No. Yeah. None of his behavior following the taping indicated that he was even particularly upset about it. He went out, they flew home together. Mm-hmm. I was even unclear that they hadn't flown there together in the first place because when would he have had the opportunity to lie to him? And clearly, if he lied to him, he already suspected that he was the one who had the crush on him. And they went out drinking and hung out together and they had the inside joke together and all of that. They brought up the thing about the flashing light, but... It really didn't seem like anything because the joke was that on his old beater car that he could use that to replace his broken um, turn signal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And only you have the tool to fix this. Like it was a double entendre thing, but like it was largely about his car being broken. So like, I'm not sure how that would be the inciting incident that they tried to make it into. Mm hmm. And it is presented as such in the beginning of the episode. It's like, oh, and he leaves this sexy, provocative note for him on his front steps after the taping, and then there's a murder. And then later on in the hour, they go into what the that there was a there was an inside joke, not entirely sexual basis for this note that he left. And it's no, it wasn't like the man was being aggressively stalked, which is what he tried to claim later. You know, it was just all of it. And it, it that that like slippery logic was again fueled by this idea that there's nothing worse that can happen to a straight man than being hit on by a gay man. And even if he was being aggressively stalked, it's still not okay to buy a shotgun and go over to somebody's house and shoot them. Yeah. 
Like, there are actually, you know, ways to redress that, and shooting people is not one of them. Yeah. Oh, it was exhausting. This special was completely exhausting. Well, it was frustrating. Yeah. It was frustrating because they just kept talking about it, and then they would not say homophobia. And I was like, I cannot believe that no one, because this is a modern special. This is being made contemporary. This Mm -hmm. isn't an old TV show. This is a, you know, this is a modern day take as people from this particular thing look back on this old incident. And so for nobody with modern sensibilities to look, none of the lawyers, none of the people, except maybe that one prosecutor and the lesbian rights person, unusual choice since there were no lesbians involved in this. Yeah. Um, uh, But, you know, I didn't mind having her opinion. She was, I agreed with her more than most, but, but, it was an odd choice for them not to address that issue um, in this particular special. Cause I just kept waiting for that bomb to drop. Like at some point we're going to say, you know, this was a hate crime mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> period. You know, there isn't some other version that father actually called them. I, I was unclear. There was some explanation, gay bastards, gay motherfuckers. It was unclear, but like he was really angry and insightful in and around the issue of Scott's sexuality. And it's just, like it's, nobody was mad because he was surprised to find somebody had a crush on him because he knew that's what he was going to find out when he got there and had even asked Scott apparently if it was him. I it's the vicious circle of bigotry. The father who explodes over the potential for his son to be humiliated is the agent of humiliation for his son. My mother, before she was a professional writer, she sold insurance in San Francisco in, I believe, the the 60s. And they said, we can't sell policies to gay people because they're too easily blackmailed. And she would sit there thinking the reason they're easily blackmailed is because they can't get insurance if people know that they're gay. It's this vicious circle. It's like you are the you become the agent of the very thing that you claim you're trying to protect your children from. You know, it's just it was the thing that was the reason for the the ban on uh, gay people in the military was that right. they could be blackmailed. But the only reason they could be blackmailed was because they would be they would lose their jobs if people found out they were gay. If you take that off the table, then there is no blackmail case. It's, They're just, yeah. you know, gay people. Yeah. Um, should we I, I'm hesitant to give him any more air time or podcast time or screen time, whatever we want to call this. But Jeffrey Figer. The attorney who brought the suit against Warner Brothers is really <laughs> what a like treat. what a treat this man is. It's like he's a he's a Democratic because apparently he was the Democratic nominee for governor in Michigan at one point prior to this case in 1995 or 96. So, but there is a certain level. Wasn't Tiger King also a Democratic? <laughs> no, he was a he conservative. Was a Republican. He was a gay he was a conservative. Republican candidate for governor, but still. And was also another gubernatorial candidate of like, really? Wow. Wouldn't have seen that coming, but sure. And what the hell? Yeah, as we all know, Tiger King was cl- deeply embraced by the stalwarts of the conservative political establishment and is to this day. But anyway, yeah, Jeffrey Figer is like a cross. He's an articulate Donald Trump crossed with, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Thomas Messereau. That a famous character defense attorney. that... 
that character that um, Martin Short plays, the um, <laughs> the the agent, his Uber agent character. What's the you know the one who did he did a they did a fake talk show with him. I can't remember. Oh, the Jiminy Glick, name. Jiminy Glick. Yes. yes, it's like a cross between Donald Trump and Jiminy Glick. Yes, it's like yeah, he's a really very interesting, very sort of like. I, but again, like I, I kept thinking, why isn't he using that? Yes. Why isn't he? Because it was, in fact, I believe the Jenny Jones show was, in fact, capitalizing on the homophobia to create the essence of the surprise. Because if it was two women, which of these two women has a crush on you? Mm-hmm. Is that really a show? Yeah. Or you're saying solicitation was if you have a same sex crush, tell us because that's going to be the surprise. And that's capitalizing on the implicit belief in the homophobia of that moment to exacerbate the surprise. Because if it was two women, it would just be like, okay, well, I either like you or I don't. Mm -hmm. But there is no shock. There is no screen value to that. So I would think that would be a better case Mm -hmm. for Figer to make because it would get at their true motive because claiming that they were negligent, that they should have seen that he was going to shoot this guy. Well, you see how that turned out. The Supreme Court just said, yeah, no, that's really not how this works. No. Sorry. Yeah. Nobody's ever gotten a dime. They they won the case, but they've ne- nobody's ever received a penny in compensation because of the, you know, except Time Warner who got all the money back with interest. Mm-hmm. Um because it because it wasn't because the case he made wasn't valid. So I thought Figer blew it too because he missed hate crime and homophobia as, but culturally I'm not sure if that would have been seen as a defense. Mm, I was going to say, yeah, I like you, you, because the Warner brothers attorney in interrogating the father about cross examining uh, Jonathan's father about that fateful phone call. He really cross-examinating. does examinating. Oh, wow. cross examining. <laughs> I like that. He was cross examining him. <laughs> anyway, yes, I, he whatever he was doing, legal terms, schmiegel terms, um, he makes that case very clearly, and it doesn't. The courtroom doesn't exactly erupt, and it doesn't seem to change the fate of the trial at all. It doesn't seem to sway the minds of the jury, who Figer successfully whips into a fury over a growing disdain for this type of show. Like, that was the battle that Figer was fighting. He was attacking this quote-unquote type of right. ambush-style talk show. And it was it was so prevalent at the time, he was going to make an example out of Jenny Jones, and then those sorts of culture warriors believe people will fall in line or there will be ripple effects of the things they're doing. And he was playing the media as well as anybody else involved in the trial, and apparently that's, that's what he's good at. Okay, so that's fine. I think you brought up something else that reminded me again of the phone call, which is the, the quotes that were given from that phone call are... So here's the sequence of events as I see it. Jonathan is invited on the show. He's presented with the possibility that it could be a guy. He has no negative reaction to that. He goes on the show. It goes the way he goes. He proclaims his heterosexuality. He goes, he calls his dad. And what he says to his dad is, yeah, the show didn't work out for me the way I thought. Meaning I don't have a new girlfriend because of the show. Not because I was humiliated or embarrassed. Then his father has the reaction that we've been talking about. 
Then everything shifts. This is the guy who beat me with a belt. He has incredible power to shame me. He has more power to shame me than the Jenny Jones show has, than anybody in the audience at the Jenny Jones show had. You know, this is somebody I have deep history with, painful history with. I just, the case is so clear to me, it drives me crazy to even talk about it again. But yeah, I, but what do you think of this idea that people should be culpable, individuals should be culpable for the decisions that they make around their involvement in the media. You know, like, do you, do you think I'm a little too high on my horse about that? I I think we are in a, I think we are in an era of where that is a real, that has really gotten to be a big question and being responsible for your own choices. Like I, the, the, the victim driven life has become really kind of a, a, an underlying cultural trend uh, for a while where my victimhood trumps my own responsibility for the choices that I make. Mm-hmm. I believe understanding that you are the progenitor of what happens in your life. It's, it's not what happens to me so much as how I react to it. Mm-hmm. That really affects my life mm-hmm. that really creates the life that I'm having. But people absolve themselves a lot, very frequently, and in a lot of instances, many of them way too controversial. I wouldn't even dream of weighing in on them uh, on the on the podcast. But people frequently don't say, don't start with their own their own part in their own responsibility, their own culpability in the outcome of their own events. Like you can't you can't start a fight with somebody. And then be mad when they respond to you because you started the fight. Mm-hmm. And a- I see in a regular basis in a lot of different examples of people behaving that way. Right. I'm going to put a personal example out there, which I don't really talk about a lot. But about 20 years ago, I appeared very briefly on an episode of The Real World New Orleans. And in order <laughs> to do this, I had, we had, mut- I had mutual friends with the cast um, right. They were the biggest thing to happen in town in a long time. Everybody was trying to angle their way into an episode of the show. Big doings. We invited them over to my mother's house to have dinner and to meet her and to be this, hopefully the substance of an episode. It was a Mardi Gras time, all this sort of stuff. We did several things with them. But that first night, knowing full well that I was going to be on camera having signed a release, wearing a body mic. I got very, very drunk, and I did a series of very embarrassing things, Very, some of which I can't fully remember to this day. And I did not know which of them were going to be included in the episode for a full year. I went a full year before the episode aired, and it wasn't like I was going to call MTV and be like, hey, that thing I did or that thing I said or that falling down, you know, you're, you're going to, I wouldn't, I didn't want to draw their attention to any of these things. And never once did it occur to me that I had been victimized by this show? Like, I was so keenly aware that my desperate desire to be on camera, which was my own to own and be responsible for, coupled with what at the time was some irresponsible behavior around alcohol yeah, and partying right. in general, had conspired to make me look like an idiot. And and now the end of the story is I appeared in about 10 seconds of the episode. The show wasn't about me because I wasn't one of the cast members. So why build the episode around me? Um, but I never felt victimized by MTV or the real world. I felt like I had done a series of stupid things having made a decision. And it's 
the thing that I see in a lot of these stories is that the people who believe that individuals like Jonathan have been victimized by big media companies, they seem to say that everyone wants to be on television so badly that it's like a desire for food or sustenance and they are justified in in giving into this desire blindly and not and we can't we have to forgive them if they don't think through the consequences and it's like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute these shows were all over the air reality shows at the time were all over the air i knew exactly how they were edited i knew what they like to focus on people's worst sure. attributes anyway so i i have a kind of personal reaction to it on that level but i just i always worry that i it's too personal and I should I should see people as being maybe more victimized by these media companies than well, I do. It's 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 not about it's it's much broader than just the 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 media companies. Although people frequently, you know, in very high places, scapegoat the media for their own bad behavior. But like the Kerry Prejean incident is a is a perfect example of somebody refusing to see their own culpability in their own outcome. Mm-hmm. Right? Like she I. Perez Hilton, I guess, asked her the question about same-sex marriage. And mm-hmm. I don't know, was it Miss USA? I'm not even sure what it was. Whatever beauty pageant it was. And she came out against same-sex marriage on national television. Mm-hmm. Like, perfectly her right, free speech, and then expected there to be no consequences. Right. For having said that. And it's like, well, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. If she had said that lynching black people was okay in her book, Mm -hmm. would she expect there to be no consequences for saying that? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think women ought to have the right to vote. You think that's an okay thing to say? Sure, it's free speech. You're allowed to say it. But are women then not allowed to reply? Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm get you drummed out of office or whatever else it is, you know, like that's the part of the, that's what I mean by people not being willing to accept responsibility for their own choices. You're free to do what you want, but there are going to be consequences for the choices that you make. And so bearing that in mind, but people do stuff and then act like, well, why is everybody being so terrible to me? And it's like, they're just exercising the same rights that you had mm-hmm. by reacting to the thing that you chose to do. Also, welcome to our world, Carrie. You know, where there was always yeah. a consequence to coming out. There was always a... I mean, God, look at this. This is what we were dealing yeah, with. Yeah, Scott this stuff. got shot right. for coming out right. to his friend. So, like, yeah. that's pretty... That's, that's a consequence. And, you know, like, and I... While I don't think getting shot was okay, Scott had a part in... His own outcome, like taking his friend on the yes. air to to come out to him on Jenny Jones was like, yeah, maybe a maybe a nice note. Yeah, maybe a nice note. But also like, <laughs> uh, you know, that he did apparently say to I, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was his friend Donna who went on the show with him that he thought doing this might advance things between him and Jonathan. And that was like. Oh, God, honey. No, no. I mean, you know, and there was a part of me that wanted to be compassionate for everybody involved and think in this time with this few options living in what was essentially a small town in rural Michigan. Is this the best thought Scott thought he could do dragging his possibly gay friend? Maybe not onto a talk show to do this. It was like, I wished all these people had had better options, you know, a better. But how romantic if Jonathan had, you know, planted a big one on him. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, 
it could have been a romantic outcome. And and we live in a world today where that outcome is more of a possibility. It wasn't really a possibility in that point in time. Mm-hmm. But it but it might be a possibility now. Right. It you might know, be. like I don't think it was a good choice. I don't think it was. But I think going on any of those shows is like, mm, we're already, you've already moved into a different realm with me. Like, mm-hmm. it's absolutely, you're right. But if if you want to go on Jerry Springer to talk about your sexual relationship with your nephew, like, mm, you know, I think maybe you've already skated out of my um, immediate experience uh-huh. or um, worldview. Uh-huh. Also, maybe, and I don't. we don't have time for this today, maybe a whole nother episode that does a deep dive on the amount of people who went on Jerry Springer who were actually paid actors, which I think was a scandal they had later in the show's life after the after the Jenny Jones era, if you And will. apparently they're all drunk. Yes, yes. But, you know, it's interesting, and, and we're, we're going to wrap it up soon, but I, I have to say I, was, I went to... Um, a gay pride event not too long after this, probably 98 or 99. I don't know. I can't remember. It was, it was a couple of years after. And I remember a speaker saying, this used to be the only place you could see gay people on television were these trash talk shows. And we were there as clowns and cartoons and oddities. But you would watch because it was like there might be a gay teenager wagging his finger in his parents' face because in the crazy lawless circus of these shows – we were included, and I'm glad it's better now. I'm glad we're more included. Sure, in, Ricky yeah. Lake had yeah. Chad Hunt come on to call out, um, what's his name, for being a has-been. Yeah, yeah, that? yeah. Was it Shishi LaRue? <laughs> yeah, it was like a whole gay porn no, it episode. No, was, it was just a different porn star. It was one <laughs> porn star called out another one for being a has-been, and I was like, wow, wow. <laughs> what a wor- This is a world that really has uh, I have missed. I remember being like 10 years old and watching an episode of the Phil Donahue show where they interviewed um, gay porn stars and one of the the people interviewing they said look I think our films are really educational and my father just lost it he was like yeah that's why people are watching <laughs> that's it anyway we are staying in the 90s next week as well with the return of true crime TV club uh, we will be serving up an episode of the 1990s, The Deadliest Decade, and continuing with the Pride Month theme, the episode of the 1990s we're covering is entitled Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That's season one, episode eight of the 1990s, The Deadliest Decade. The usual disclaimer, you do not have to watch the episode before we serve it up for you. Our job is to make you feel like you've watched it, even if you haven't. But of course, if you would like to beforehand... We think that's fun, and we love your Facebook comments. Right? Yes. Absolutely. You might have particular notes or comments for us um, as we're going along. And speaking of Facebook and comments in general, if you would like my esteemed and brilliant co-host, Eric Shaw Quinn, to weigh in on your personal life choices, or you have a... Which apparently you would not. (laughs) (laughs) It is becoming increasingly apparent that you don't, and that's fine, too. (laughs) The email address, though, if you have a change of heart, is eric at the dinnerpartyshow.com. And we also, you can leave your questions on our Facebook page as well. It's the Facebook page for the Absolutely. Dinner Party the Show. The only reason for the email address is for if you want anonymity. And I think that our um, audience is just so out and proud that they just post it right on the Facebook page. Uh, so good for you. Uh, okay, with some, Happy Pride. Uh, yeah, with some exceptions, and this is really it, and I'll wrap it up. But like, we recently put out a solicitation for coming out stories for a future episode and i wanted people i was pretty clear i reread the post to post their coming out story 
in the comments and a lot of people just commented, I'd love to share mine, exclamation point. And I had to go back and say, share it here, please. And eventually they came around, but I think they were expecting us to call them and interview them. But, you know, maybe at a later date, we'll do something like that. Anyway. I've been watching Jenny Jones. <laughs> All right. That's all for this episode of TDPS Presents Christopher That's enough. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. Enough already. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. Now that's enough. This is TDPS.